0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Recently, USU philosophy professors Erica Holberg, Charlie Heeneman, and Er Harrison Kleiner participated in a panel discussion on the USU campus with the provocative title, Our Students Snowflakes. Next time, or this time I should say, on the program we're uh, going to explore the tension between the value we place on free speech on college campuses and how that value can sometimes collide with the desires of students and others to not be exposed to ideas they find offensive. This discussion has obvious parallels to ongoing issues in broader society, of course. And we'll uh, talk about it. We'll invite you to talk about it with us. Uh, Upraccess at com is the place to go for email. And you can call us at 800-826-1495. Perhaps you've uh, seen examples, experienced examples of this uh, on either sides of uh, of the issue yourself. So we uh, welcome uh, to the program Harrison Kleiner, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, Eric Holberg is USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Thanks.
1: For Hi. Thank you.
0: And Charlie Hiedemann is USU Professor of Philosophy. Thanks. Sure. You're welcome. So we have a group of philosophers. What's the what's the, what's the the collective noun? A conundrum. A conundrum, <laughs> a conundrum of philosophers. <laughs> a conundrum of philosophers with us. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of us are familiar with this term. It's a it's snowflake. It's a term that's thrown by conservatives against liberals in broader society. And then there's become a discussion, which you participated in recently, about students. And perhaps this generation of students um, are, are snowflakes. So what's... What, what what definition are we using?
2: Uh, we all um, use this, this urban online dictionary definition of snowflake, because I don't think any of us actually use the term snowflake ourselves uh, ever, or at least very often at all. And that definition is this. A term used to describe extremist liberals that get offended by every statement and or belief that doesn't exactly match their own. These individuals think they are just as unique as snowflakes when really their feelings are just as fragile. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so that gets
0: thrown away around. Um, so I wanted to give some examples, have you give some examples. And I'm, um, I think it was Harrison Kleiner pointed me to an article in The Atlantic from a couple of years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind by uh, Greg uh, Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Um, they say, I'll just quote part of this, Something strange is happening at America's colleges and universities. A movement is arising, undirected and driven largely by students, to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. Last December, Jeannie Sook wrote in an online article for The New Yorker about law students asking her fellow professors at Harvard not to teach rape law, or in one case, even to use the word violate, as in that violates the law, lest it cause students distress. In February, Lara Kipnis, a professor at Northwestern University, wrote an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education describing a new campus politics of sexual paranoia and was then subjected to be a long investigation after students who who were offended by the article and by a tweet she'd sent uh, filed Title IX complaints against her. And in June, a professor protecting himself with a pseudonym wrote an essay for Vox, describing how gingerly he has to teach. He says, I'm a liberal professor and my liberal students terrify me. <laughs> so, um, I mean, those are some, some exam- pretty stark examples. Are, mm. are are you professors experiencing any of that? Um
1: I, 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 so I I don't think – I think no. I think that, I guess, when I say in general, this seems to me that mostly evidence that students are snowflakes is anecdotal and that it's not that I don't think it ever happens. I'm sure it does. But I I in my experience, students are amazing in, in terms of their ability to be interested, to want to hear, to want to engage with views that differ from their own. And that they ha- they're they very open-minded, actually. So I would like – I mean, I, I believe that the snowflake term is just – it's a kind of false slander um, used to generalize about college students today.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we should admit, I mean, we're three philosophy professors, so w- we might not be encountering as many students, right, as there are – well, obviously, we're not. And so we 're typically encountering students that are willing to engage in argument that really are passionate about hearing both sides of the issue, and so we're we 're not seeing in fact i 've never really seen the snowflake mm. uh, paradigm you know crop up in my class but this is generally um i think an issue where we hear an outrageous story, we hear two outrageous stories, and then we 're quick to write an article about what 's wrong with American campuses. Uh, on the basis of these anecdotes, but but we've been the three of us have been talking about this a lot and trying to make some kind of connection between these sorts of on the face of it crazy stories of snowflakes and any kind of empirical research about how students today are different from students you know uh, a generation ago.
0: Hmm. Harrison Kleiner, you uh, you made some points in this panel discussion about illiberalism more generally and the new left. And uh, ironically, that some on the on the left are have, have this puritanical impulse. One exa- before you j- jump in, one in, one example that really stood out to me, and I think you gave this one. Uh, the founder of Firefox, you I uh, hadn't been aware of this, was kicked out of his own company for a private donation in favor of Proposition Eight in California.
2: Yeah, and I think this is hates in the coddling American mind. His concern is that he is uh, justly or unjustly. I guess I don't know drawing a a connection between uh, student sort of sensitivities and students being perhaps uh, overly sensitive, unable to deal with confrontation and offensive speech in the way that perhaps they would have been trained to before. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I was told, sticks and stones don't break your bones. Uh, Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Um, I think most students these days think that words really can be a form of violence, and, and they might be right um so there's been I think hate's trying to point out that there's been a lot of changes in the culture and a lot of changes in parenting where students are encountering speech in a different way than maybe we would have before and then he's trying to connect this to some of these examples I suppose there's some open question to how isolated these crazy examples are or or if hate is right that there's a sort of trend um but he's trying to make a connection between. Uh, the sort of snowflakiness of students insofar as they are snowflakes um, and then this illiberal streak on campus where there's a where there's a push in some cases and I think there is clearly. It's not like there's one or two anecdotal cases. There's, there's you know, dozens. Um, now, uh, dozens, I don't know when it's a trend, but, uh, but there's enough cases where I think it's reasonable to start to wonder um, are students valuing free expression on campus in the same way that I think most of their faculty do, um, or is there's a sort of impulse to sort of purify the campus because first and foremost, it should be a place where students do not have to encounter anything offensive, and only secondarily, is a place where they engage different kinds of ideas.
3: Hmm. Do you think? Do you think maybe a, uh, one of these anecdotal examples might be good to sort of yeah, help? Yeah, I think uh, that'd be great. Harrison, help. would you mind recounting that story about the the person with the book cover?
2: Yeah, so this is actually in the Coddling of the American Mind uh, article, and I have it pulled up, so I'll just read. Um, Claims of a right not to be offended have continued to arise since then. He'd given some other examples. And universities have continued to privilege them. So his uh, his claim here is that universities have tended to administrations to sort of kowtow to these student demands to, to scrub the campus of things that are offensive, whether it's names of buildings or, or you know or speech or speakers or whatever it might be. In a particularly egregious 2008 case, for instance, Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis found a white student guilty of racial harassment for reading a book titled Notre Dame vs. the Klan. The book honored student opposition to the Ku Klux Klan when it marched on Notre Dame in 1924. Nonetheless, the picture of a Klan rally on the book's cover offended at least one of the student's co-workers, and who was a janitor as well as a student, and that was enough for a guilty finding by the university's affirmative action office
0: hmm. yeah that, that's a stark example it is uh, judging yeah. a book by its cover it, it, literally it, literally it, yeah, yeah yeah i wonder uh, just to maybe take this broader and then come back to campus um as I mentioned before snowflake is uh, is a term used by you generally can, some conservatives against some liberals um you know saying you just need to toughen up you you mm-hmm. uh, you melt you know in the, in the, in the face of opposition to your ideas. Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, some liberals shout down, uh, try to shout down conservatives by labeling. Mm-hmm. One, one favorite is racist. Any, any sign of any uh, hint of racism, you're a racist, right? And that gets, gets used. And lately I have uh, some acquaintances of mine, I overheard a conversation where uh, the one fellow was saying, well, they call us racist anyway, I'll just embrace that. You know, he he, hmm. he feels that he's not a racist, but hey, you know, w- whatever. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna reject that by embracing it. If I'm gonna get called it no matter what, then I might yeah. as well.
3: I don't know what. I mean, what accept the benefits of the term? Right, <laughs> right. Are yeah. there
0: benefits of that term? So ad hominem attacks, shouting down. Uh, it's not a productive way to uh, to conduct a democracy right now. No.
3: Right, and this is. Um, so a great model of the university is that it's the free marketplace of ideas, that uh, so long as you've got some kind of reasons for your view, let's hear your view, let's hear your reasons, and let's discuss whether those reasons are, are sufficient to prove the conclusion. And uh, and the ideal model is we can argue about anything, whatever comes up, right? But, uh, of course, some of the stuff that can come up, in, our, in other times, in our time as well, is stuff that's extraordinarily offensive. And, and Eric in our presentation uh, gave this very beautiful, eloquent quote from Frederick Douglass about why he doesn't feel he needs to present an argument uh, uh, against racism, right? Why he should Against shouldn't, slavery. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, the quote is where all is plain, nothing need be argued. And that, that, his point is, do you want me to prove that I'm a man? Do you want me to prove that man, man deserves liberty? Both these things are obvious, and to ask me to argue it is an insult to me, it's an insult to yourself, right? That there's a kind of moral bedrock principle that just means that like, there's a kind of degre- degradation in the demand for an argument. And so while I do think that calling somebody racist is not productive, I do think it's very important to be able to talk about whether certain claims are racist. And that it's important for students to learn how to identify and to be able to assert that, right? Now, maybe just the assertion itself doesn't mean it's true, but I do think that to shy away from certain terms because people are likely to be offended from them. I mean, I take that to be part of the whole snowflake phenomena at heart of it, is that people want to say things and they don't want to be morally judged for saying them. But that's not a possible position in our society. Moral judgment comes upon the things that we say um and that's difficult and that's hard
0: and and there are i mean shouldn't there be things and that that's part of the whole argument recently there are things we thought were settled but now there's a pushback uh, aren't there aren't there ideas that are so offensive so ridiculous that they should be universally uh, rejected
3: right um Although, you know, it's easy. It's easy then. Well, first of all, yes. Right. Of course. I mean, I mean, uh, the idea that we should take a university class and ask uh, students in the class, let's let's say uh, many of them are African-Americans to prove that African-Americans are human beings. Right. I mean, uh, in a way, let's, let's laud the conclusion. Yes, of course, we should all believe the conclusion, but to put somebody in a position where they, they have to feel that there's an op, that there, it's incumbent upon them to prove that they're a human being or, or a sufficiently rational human being is, is absurd and ridiculous. We've moved past that. We don't need to open up that again. Same thing with proving that, that women have equal abilities and so on. It just seems like that we've, that area in the marketplace of ideas can be shut down. We don't need to rehearse that. Of course, at the same time, how do you do that but, but also treat, like, the history of American culture, to treat the arguments of racists and slavists and so on? Um, if you want to have an accurate understanding of history, you've got to get into why they held the views that they held, right? Mm. And, and it takes, I think, an extraordinary degree of sensitivity to be able to present the arguments in such a way that students themselves feel, feel the grip of them feel that this is a rational person, although poorly informed, could believe this conclusion, um, but without feeling personally threatened by them. I mean, there are high stakes in the classroom, which is exactly as it should be, I would say. If it's a genuine education, it should be difficult uh, both to teach and to learn.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to to dive into this, if I can uh, find it here. Um, I think you brought this up, Harrison Kleiner, um, and I'm not sure if this is John Stuart Mill. Uh, civilization, is people locked together in argument?
2: No, that was a, a line from um, Father John Courtney Murray okay. in a book called "Behold These Truths. And uh, barbarianism is uh, when we're not engaged with the other side,
0: um, which <laughs> troublingly may describe the United States of America right now. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about that, and I want to get into a case study Um Charlie Hedeman, you brought three cases to consider to this panel discussion, and I want to jump into one of these uh, in which a professor is uh, teaching a course on U.S. Civil War from the Confederacy's Confederacy's point of view, which might uh, get us into some, or that fictional account, uh, and get us into some uh, some troublesome uh, areas, which we're experiencing uh, Mm -hmm. today. More following the break.
1: Want to get to know yourself better? Shh. Try being very, very
2: quiet. In the silence you meet yourself. It could be beautiful, but it could also be maybe even sometimes terrifying.
1: Find out how silence can improve our lives.
3: Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX.
2: Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio.
1: On the next On Being, the New Yorker's Adam Gopnik on the evolution of spiritual life in a secular age. I think that the
3: negation of God doesn't negate our morality, but the negation of God doesn't supply us with morality either. That those are things that we have to make up for ourselves, and the only way we can make them
1: is to remake them. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us.
2: Join us Sunday night at 5 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for
0: listening to Access Utah. am Tom Williams, and I have uh, three philosophy professors uh, with me. A conundrum of philosophers, as uh, Charlie Heeneman tells me. That's the collective noun. Um, Harrison Kleiner, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Erica Holberg, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy. And Charlie Heeneman, USU Professor of Philosophy. They uh, were recently uh, involved in a panel discussion with a provocative title, Our Students Snowflakes. And we're talking about. The tension between the value we place on free speech on college campuses and how that value can sometimes collide with the desires of students and others to not be exposed to ideas they find offensive. This discussion has obvious parallels, of course, to ongoing issues in broader society. You're welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. Perhaps you have an experience or an example that you'd like to contribute to the program or your opinion, your question. Um, Upraccess at gmail dot com or eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Tom,
3: can I jump in with with an observation? We we met earlier and talked a little bit about this, and uh, and the thought occurred to me that you know, of course, in college, young people are learning how to become young adults. They're they're kind of experimenting in a number of ways, conceptually, emotionally, physically, and so on. And one of the things that they're learning to do is learn when to raise a complaint, right? When to kick up a fuss, how to do it, and uh, and what the consequences are, right? And so I think you sh- should expect on a college campus that somebody might raise a sort of objection about somebody's book cover, about somebody's use of a word in class, about a particular reading assignment, and as as they're exploring their kind of ways of being in the world, you might say, they raise an objection, and they say, I'm offended by that. I don't I don't like the picture, I don't like the story, I don't like the word, whatever, right? And that's something, of course, they should do. You have to experiment, you have to see what the consequences are. Um, but then the really important question is, what happens at that point? Does the instructor, does the representative from student services say, well, tell me more about how you were offended, whether that was offended? Did you ask what the book was about? Did you ask the person why they were reading it? Did you ask about the significance of the picture? Uh, what, what was the point of the instructor using that word, or what was the point of that reading assignment? And, and to develop a conversation so that the student can then kind of learn what you, we might call the appropriate bounds of outrage right? You know, when when to say, all right, at first I was offended, but as I learned more, I realized this is an idea worth taking seriously. Or no, that really was offensive. And the more that I found out, the more outraged I became. Part of college has to be how to be a responsible citizen in regard to your reactions and your emotions and what you do with those things. Yeah. And it's difficult waters to be sure, as everyone can appreciate. But I wonder if that's part of what only part, but part of what uh, leads to the snowflake phenomenon is if somebody experiments with a particular species of outrage and then is immediately treated com- completely and entirely seriously as this is a legitimate grounds for complaint, when in some cases it isn't. Hmm. And uh, But how do you walk that line? Uh, think of trying to craft a policy that tells you exactly how to behave when to take the complaint seriously and when not? The safest route is to always take it seriously, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't want to fall into the position of not taking something seriously when it should be taken seriously, right? You see what I mean?
0: And then that might do disservice if you take everything seriously to the student right. themselves, exactly. This exactly. might be good, right. uh, a good place to talk about trigger warnings. I had not been aware of this. We didn't didn't have trigger warnings when I went to, to school. Maybe an indication of some change, you know, in, in sensitivities or trying to take sensitivities of students into account. Um, and I, I think you talked a bit about this, Erica Holberg.
1: Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of empirical evidence, actually, that most professors don't feel like trigger warnings are something that they need to do in a systematic way in their classes. I myself, I mean, I I teach I teach social social ethics, and we do contemporary case studies of ethical issues. And you know, I do a case study on guns on campus. I do a case study um, having to do with rape, um, and uh, you know, a person's ability to consent. And I have had students request not to come to class on certain when we're discussing certain topics, and I, I I'm a, I've been fine with that. Uh, different professors maybe would handle that differently, um, but I think that to me again, the students themselves show remarkable maturity in being able to express to me their concerns um, and to, you know, do in a sense what's best for them without having me to require certain sorts of things. But this is something um, that uh, you know other professors. Have struggled with like what what is the appropriate um kind of response to student requests to avoid certain topics
0: mm-hmm. Harrison kleiner i don't know if you have a an opinion on 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 this um, trigger warnings on the are there some subjects where you should allow a student uh, to to opt out
2: um I think every case is a little different, so I'm a little hesitant to make some sort of sweeping uh sort of claim about how things should always be done uh because i think i can imagine cases where um it's just not fair to the student to to put them in in a in a position to have to confront something uh that maybe ha- might have something to do with the immediacy from a from an event that the student has suffered or, or it might be various factors that i think a prudent professor would take into account when considering something like this but so I guess I want to sort of back away from anything all that concrete. Um, I'm a <laughs> philosopher, uh, and 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 maybe say something more general. I guess I will raise a concern about trigger warnings for the sake of having a sort of different point of view on on the table here. One concern is is that the idea that civilization is formed by human beings locked in argument suggests that uh, an essential feature of a demo- of democratic life is that we don't let Ugly things um, hide away in the shadows, um, which actually I think, I and mean, a lot of people have argued this, that this is one of the reasons why the sort of rise of the alt right and sort of white nationalism is is in part a function of the fact that for 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 a couple decades now, a lot of Americans have just pretended that it wasn't there, they just sort of ignored it and sort of like let it fester in the in the shadows. It wasn't gone, you know. It was it persisted the whole time. A lot of us sort of like to think that it was gone, but it wasn't. Uh, and now it's sort of back, although it, it was never gone, right? And it's a bit more <laughs> sort of resurgent, right? Um, and so some people have suggested, look, you've really got to shine a light on difficult things. You've really got to shine a light on uncomfortable things. You have to let – and it might even not even be beneficial for the student overall. Again, I, I, I want to leave room for sort of prudential judgment about particular cases. But it might even be useful for the student to be totally protected from things that make them anxious, from things that make them feel offended, Um A certain amount of resilience is built up by having to confront things that make us anxious and fearful or offended. Um, Mill's sort of idea that that a big part of of sort of the pursuit of truth means encountering passionate defenses of positions that we reject. And it it not only helps us understand other points of view, it actually clarifies our own point of view, that if, if you only know one side of the argument, you don't really know why you believe what you believe. And so I guess generally I'm a little concerned about safe spaces um, in that I, th- I think they probably don't actually serve the students very well overall. Again, I can imagine cases where, you know, all right, you just <laughs> endured something a week ago and it, it, let's not have you have to confront this right away. Let's give you some time um, to adjust. But but I do think there's a legitimate objection to be raised generally to trigger warnings and safe spacing The campus because it seems to undermine part of sort of the idea of a university and and what the university and even the idea of civilization right if we if we define civilization as human beings locked together in argument um, just shouting other people down is a sort of barbaric anti intellectual exercise.
0: I wonder just expanding this if a growing number of Americans are snowflakes Hmm. Um, by that (laughs) definition we segregating ourselves into safe spaces. Uh, Only watch Fox News, only watch MSNBC. Uh, By that definition, uh, civilizations, people lock together in argument. We're going the opposite direction, aren't we?
1: So I, I just want to say that I think that I agree with everything that Harrison just said, but I do think that the term snowflake itself is used in what he just described as a barbaric illiberal way. Like I think that snowflake is used as a way of trying to prevent certain sorts of speech that you disagree with and trying to promote certain sorts of speech that you take to be on your side or on your team. Mm. So I do think that snowflake, the the term itself, because it's a kind of character slander, a kind of claim that the person that you're criticizing as a snowflake doesn't have the courage of their convictions to actually meet you in honest argument, that this itself is often put to illiberal uses.
0: Mm. So it's a a label that's thrown around to... Well, maybe give the example in Wisconsin that might be helpful well so
1: um so the the state legislature, not the um not the Senate, but the um I guess the House, passed a bill um, saying that students who protest could be suspended and eventually expelled, and in fact, the Board of trustees there um, approved i think sixteen out of eighteen voted for it that um, I think it's the like if you protest in a disruptive way, which was left unspecified that um, the second time it was a suspension and the third time it you'd be expelled from the university. Wow. Um, and, you know, protest seems to me a very good example of just the thing that Charlie was talking about, this kind of experimentation and figuring out um, what to argue for, what to argue against, and a kind of um, first foray as a young person um, trying to, you know, institute justice in the world around us. I mean, that's the kind of people we, we want to be growing, good moral agents, good civic-minded, engaged adults. And, um I think that because of the way that the what counted as a, a violation of, I mean, what counts as disruptive was left unspecified. That there's a kind of danger in this sort of attack.
2: The, the, the difficulty, though, it seems yeah. to me, is this. So I agree with yeah. that. That the problem is, is how do we? I do okay. think there is such a thing as a disruptive protest that the administration ought to shut down. And I think it was Charles Murray. Was it Dartmouth where? Uh, Middlebury, Middlebury. excuse me, Mm -hmm. where he tried to speak and um, this is sort of very disruptive, I mean I think by any measure a disruptive protest, uh, shouting him down, he wasn't even able to to speak, and then of course it sort of escalated as they tried to basically hustle him off campus Uh, and of course he had been invited to the campus by a faculty member at Middlebury who profoundly disagreed with his point of view Mm -hmm. and brought him onto campus in order to engage in a sort of argument, right, and to try to show that he was wrong. Um, so then she sort of hustled him off campus, but a mob, I think it's fair to describe, a sort of mob of of sort of angry students who had not well learned the limits of outrage and how to express <laughs> it, um, attacked them. She went to the hospital with like a neck injury or something like this as they tried to hustle him off campus. So the difficult thing is, is in part, there's sort of some wisdom in... I don't think it's illiberal to say we're going to prevent some kinds of speech on campus, right? I mean, I don't think there's – I don't know really anybody who thinks it's just no holds bar, and Anyone can say anything they want, or you can be just as disruptive if you want at an event. How to articulate policies, though, I think Charlie mm-hmm. raised a very good point, that they can deal with the nuances and the fine grain of each different situation is very, very difficult.
3: Yeah. Yeah, the Charles Murray case mm-hmm. is very interesting because he's – uh infamous for, uh, I suppose, or famous or infamous for a book called The Bell Curve, in which he looks at uh, racial differences in performances on IQ tests and ACTs and SATs and so on. And at least according to the argument of the book, he says, look, you take into account all the environmental factors, and there's still a gap between how white students do and how African-American students do. And so he was providing what seemed to be a kind of empirical basis for some kind of racist claim. So that that's the kind of thing that should put any academic in a kind of difficult, queasy position, right? Is it is it racist? Well, yeah, sort of by definition, yeah, it is, right? Uh, but is it empirically grounded, or at, at least does it kind of pass some initial test of doing due diligence to the empirical data and methodology. Yeah, sure, there's going to be disagreement about his methods and disagreements about the conclusions that he drew from his data and so on. But that seems like the sort of debate we ought to welcome mm. at a university. Mm. On the other hand, the conclusion is morally repugnant, mm. right? So what do you do with a speaker like that? Now, at
2: Middlebury... Actually, he wasn't there to defend that book. It no, was a no. new book that's actually pretty widely regarded.
3: Right, right. But he does kind of carry that, that, that yes. story His reputation with precedes him, though. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh at Middlebury he faced that mob response. Uh shortly after that, uh he went to speak at Columbia and um Columbia University in New York and uh, and it was completely uneventful. He talked, people disagreed, there was another talk in disagreement with him, everybody went home having had a, a rich intellectual conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um now we might say just on the surface of it, Columbia did it right, Middlebury did it wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, put yourself in the position of uh, an African-American student at Middlebury who uh, is listening to the speaker who is attempting, well, who is, let's say, infamous for having tried to uh, provide empirical basis for a racist claim and and to take that view seriously and to respect that. That speaker who, in, in a certain sense, and this is overblown, but there's some sense of truth in this. In a certain sense, this speaker was denying that student's very humanity. Well, or at least compromising it in some degree. What, do you, how, what is the appropriate response when you have uh, 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 an authoritative figure, a scholar, uh, who is presenting to you personally a morally repugnant conclusion? Do you just argue back, or do you stand up and shout? No.
1: I think, I, I mean, I guess I think that shouting is wrong because of the way that it shuts on the other person's speech. Mm-hmm. But I do think that arguing is not quite the right answer either. I think that there should be ways of conveying our disrespect, and I think there are ways of doing mm-hmm. that, ways to show that we disagree and that we think that what this person is arguing is not just wrong, but actually morally wrong.
2: Mm-hmm. Out of bounds.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. but without that having to involve this kind of shouting over. Because I do think that that's a kind of a bridge too far.
0: What uh, what what kinds of ways would you
1: find? Well, so because I mean uh,
0: because uh, shouting is, I can see, it's cathartic it's it's yeah. uh, it's it's meeting the the violence of the idea that you oppose in an equally violent uh, form w- without resorting to actual violence what, yes. uh, if, if we rule out shouting then what
1: so I think though that part of what 's right about people who are responding in these very angry ways to views that they disagree with is that speech can be a, a form of violence. I think that i don 't know for sure to get that but it seems to me it can be and actually I think our um, the recent our recent example of sexual assault <laughs> claims show that, you know, certain certain things that people say can be a form of violence. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I guess lots of students actually have taken to take into doing this, have turned their backs to the speaker. I think that's a good way of showing that you morally disagree with the, what the person's saying or what the person stands for. Um, I just think signs of protest, I mean, ways of showing that, like, that it's important to show the way that you're unified and that you have a view Um, that's in opposition to this person without at that same time robbing the person of their ability to speak and have their ideas heard.
0: Mm -hmm. Harrison Kleiner, before I I think I heard you say that there might be some cases where not everyone has the right, quote unquote, to speak officially on campus. (laughs) Should should I don't know if that was the correct characterization or no, what so I, that, so, yeah, I, so. Actually,
1: I think that was me actually. Okay, who said that. okay. all right, uh, hey, go ahead. and I, I do think here I mean moral right. I, I, I don't like certain states. It is in fact the case that you do have a right to appear. I guess, mm-hmm. um, but um, I I do think that simply because you have idea doesn't mean that you should. I mean, the university mm-hmm. is a platform. And I do think that we should we should honor and love our universities. <laughs> and, like, and universities make choices all the time about who they want to promote, who they want to hold up as having ideas worthy of listening to. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do think it's okay to argue against universities hosting people that you feel have morally um, repugnant views. I think it's a perfectly fine thing. We don't want the university to be associated with this. Um, so I, I do think it's um, okay to... Um, And I don't think that's a denial of speech in general. It's not like there's no other ways for people to have their ideas heard, that the only way for my voice to count is if I can get the university to host an event of mine. Um,
2: I'm not sure of the rules. I might be wrong. But my my understanding is a public university like Utah State, any old Joe off the street can walk onto the quad and say whatever they please because it's a public space, right? And so, um, but I don't think that any old Joe can reserve a lecture hall on campus um, and use that as a place for their expression. Typically, use of campus facilities, aside from just the public spaces on campus, um, are reserved for faculty to make reservations and, and, and administration and student clubs. So recently, uh, who was it that spoke at, at the University of Utah? Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the University of Utah, it was a student club that had invited this con- controversial alt-right speaker. And I, I happen to think that universities should be pretty deferential to if a student club says we want to hear this voice on campus, I'm inclined to think that universities should be pretty deferential to that and make accommodations, even though in some cases it's extremely expensive. Berkeley spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to provide security for Milo when he came on. He had been invited by a campus club. Um, And I think, you know, there probably should be some deference there. So the question of who has the right to speak on campus than anyone does in public spaces. The university does have some ways of, of, you know, who can invite people to use campus facilities. There are some restrictions on on that. Not any old Joe can come in and use the Taggart Student Center. Mm. So, uh,
0: so uh, putting aside, um, I guess, the legal, um, you know, the rules, yeah. what about the advisability You have, you know, Richard Spencer or Milo Yiannopoulos wants to come to USU. Yeah. Uh, would is it advisable to come and have students be able to engage with those? <laughs> I think many people would find offensive ideas.
3: Well, I think one one factor that should be considered is uh, I mean, philosophers have a number of ways of looking at social moral issues, and in this particular case, I suppose you might look at things in an Aristotelian way, right? Which would which would ask first of all, what's the purpose of a university? And I think we would agree that the purpose of the university is to educate young folks to uh to train specialists and graduate programs and to conduct research and the further you know scholarly extensions of knowledge that's a that's a generous description of what the university is all about um And so then what what is the point of inviting somebody like Richard Spencer, like Milo, like like any of these folks? Is it furthering any of those interests in the university? Is it furthering the purpose of the university? Or is it just kind of providing a splash? You get your name on the front page sort of thing. And and maybe if you're lucky, there's a mob incident and that's a whole bunch of free publicity or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? Uh, Is it just controversy for the sake of controversy? Or is there a pedagogical or research uh, sort of uh, goal in mind? And I think with a lot of these speakers, it's not an honest confrontation of ideas worth considering. It's more of just conflict for the sake of conflict. Now, it, it could be handled in different ways. You could invite somebody like Milo, somebody like Richard Spencer, to have one talk and then have another talk answering that talk or a debate or something like that, something that, that might be shaped in such a way as to meet one of the ends of the university. And at least so far as the university's decisions are concerned, I mean, I agree with Harrison that that when it comes to student groups, the the scenario changes a little bit. Uh, I mean, a student group might want to bring in, um, I don't know, a great tap dancer or something like that. And and I don't know if that's furthering any of the uh, end of the university, but it's a whole lot of fun. Um, but but when it's a university event, a university invitation, it should be furthering one of those goals that are the purposes of the university. And, and I think events can be shaped in such a way as to be sure to do it. And there might be some speakers for whom, uh, no matter what you do, it's not really going to advance any of those ends. It's just mm-hmm. going to be a, a, a terrible show of conflict.
2: I actually think one angle here that hasn't been explored as much in the things that I've read is the role of faculty in mentoring these student groups, so so I, I'm the faculty sponsor of a of a group on campus that's a part of a national organization called the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and it's a conservative uh, outfit that's interested in sort of great books uh, education, um, and so it actually um, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute defunded their uh, funding for a college Republican Party at Berkeley because they invited Milo. And essentially what they said is they tried to do some mentorship. They tried to tell these young students, listen, why are you doing this? Because it was clear why they were doing it. They were trying to elicit a mob response so that they could say, ha ha, we told you that the left is illiberal. Um, And it's not participating in the idea of university and a culture of argument. That wasn't even their intention in, in the invitation. And so I think faculty could probably do more with these student groups that are making some of these sort of controversial invitations. And it's not that we should never invite controversial speakers. We definitely should. Um, but, uh, but I wonder sometimes about the motivations behind the invitations. And I think faculty might want to lean in a little more <laughs> into their student groups to sort of explore with them what is a culture of argument and, and what are your real motivations here. Um, I think sometimes the motivations have been, have been less than noble. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, broaden this out. Um, and what, what should
0: we do? You know, you, you quote John Stuart Mill that uh, civilization is people locked together in argument. Increasingly, we're retreating to our silos in our broader society and not locked in that argument. Mm-hmm. How do we get back to doing that? And what, what, what's the proper way to engage? We've been talking about that uh, a bit. Um, and I want to uh, talk about this question as well that came up in the panel discussion. How uniform in proper thought should a society be? To tackle those two uh, questions when we come back following this break
1: next time on Ask Me Another actor and writer of the YA series The Land of Stories Chris Colfer joins us to talk about his toughest editor to date his grandma and if she liked it she'd put it in a pile on her table but if she didn't like it she'd crumble it up in front of me toss it in the trash can and say
2: Christopher you can do better
1: So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia.
2: Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on Livewire, Phoebe Robinson from the Two Dope Queens podcast on reasons why you should Google yourself. Yes, someone just wrote, like, hello, pit stains, and I was, like, switching my deodorant immediately, and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't Googled myself. All that and more this week on LiveWire from PRI. Join us Saturday night at 5 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with our panel, which uh, is consisting of uh, Eric Holberg and Harrison Kleiner, they're both uh, USU Assistant Professors of Philosophy at USU, and uh, Charlie Heeneman, USU Professor of Philosophy. The three of them were recently involved in a uh, panel discussion with the provocative title, Our Students, Snowflakes. And uh, so we're going to continue the discussion uh, here, and we uh, begin this segment of the program with an email that's come in. we'd love to get your take on this uh, discussion, which uh, has broad implications, of course, uh, beyond the college campus uh, to all of us. And uh, the way you can reach us is upraxcess at com, upraccess at com, Or you can call us. Toll-free number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. This is Dave. Dave uh, says, panelists, do you think the snowflake phenomenon is not so much about students themselves, but more about society's ever-increasing focus on political correctness? And or erring on the side of caution when it comes to creating "quote unquote" safe environment, campus, workplace, uh, workspace, et cetera. That's uh, Dave. I don't know who wants to tackle that. Uh, yeah. I,
3: I can maybe start if, if you like. Um, th- right. I mean, there's there's this uh, the the very I think the very best model for a society would be a society in which we can uh, raise issues, raise arguments, and have difficult conversations while maintaining respect for one another that's the ideal to shoot for if you can't get that for whatever reason you have to just sort of tolerate one another and get along with that difference and just not interfere with one another and i think that political correctness generally uh, as a a, we could have another show on political correctness i Mm -hmm. suppose but but uh, i suppose it's generally opting for that second method of let's we're having a polite dinner together, let's not bring up politics, let's not bring up religion, let's not bring up any topical issues, pass the gravy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And and so to avoid conflict by just not engaging in discussion. Well, the better ideal would be to have discussion that's substantive, that we can take seriously. But, but the, the problem is that, um, at least apart from universities, Citizens don't get any training in how to have a conversation. I mean, right now we have politicians engaging in political debate with 140 characters or less, right? It's all tweeted. And you can't have a substantive discussion mm-hmm. in that way. Or in, in news clips, their news clips are like seven seconds long, ten seconds long, something like that. You can't have a substantive debate that way. So, And, and TV shows rarely provide the kind of model for how to have a discussion. So uh we have this pervasive phenomenon of people not knowing how to disagree with one another. Mm-hmm. And the, so you have to kind of lean back to political correctness as the only way to avoid coming to to, coming to blows.
0: By the yeah. way, uh, Twitter's up to 280 characters, so problem's, oh, problem right. solved. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. I take, your, I
2: take your point. <laughs> um, I think I come down, though, in a different mm-hmm. conclusion. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything Charlie said up until the last sentence. Part of my point in the panel discussion was in a – highly contested moral and political environment, which is the case at the country at large. I think it's less the case on college campuses, because I think college campuses are actually pretty homogenous morally and politically. Um, But in a a, a pluralistic society, you're going to have profound differences. And some of those differing opinions might be offensive to other members of the society. And, And then the question is, well, who gets to decide... What's out of bounds and what's not out of bounds? I think a collection of people who have learned to disagree agreeably and have learned to have substantive, thoughtful conversations could probably come to some conclusions. It doesn't seem to me as a society we're capable of that at this point. Um, and and I think it's reasonable for some members of society and maybe even some students and faculty to not trust um, the power brokers on university campuses to be... Entirely fair to all points of view, um conservatives feel very much on the defensive in college campuses. So my impulse is to opt for more speech, even if that means more offense rather than the politically correct option would be let's opt for less offense, which means which has a symptom of less speech. My impulse would be to opt for more speech even if I don't celebrate the offense that people would 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 have to endure but it strikes me as a sort of necessary feature of a free society. Hmm.
1: See, I I just want to say in response to what Harrison just said, I don't think, I think it would be a mistake for either a liberal or conservative to think I'm gonna let somebody else decide for me what the correct boundaries are for speech. I don't think we should trust any authority figure to make that kind of basic moral judgment for us, right? That's something that we all are called upon and responsible for doing as citizens and as moral agents. So I don't think that we should in any sense abdicate our responsibility for doing that. Now, of course, we're going to disagree about what the, how to draw those boundaries, what the right limits are for that. But this is why I think that I agree with Harrison that more speech is better, but that, that more speech should be started from something like what Charlie articulated as the ideal, which is like, let's figure out what we can agree upon together. I actually think that universities are not that much more homogenous or less homogenous than society at large. I think there are, in general, basic things that we agree about, right? For instance, like Nazis are bad. <laughs> <laughs> right? And like that, that's a starting point, right? Now, it's, not, it's true. There's going to be some people who don't agree with that. But those people, we can say, well, that's like an unreasonable disagreement, right? That, you, that, that you're, you're embracing an unreasonable position, and so we don't need to take that seriously, right? That we can make distinctions between what a reasonable person can reasonably disagree about and what reasonable people should reasonably agree about.
2: Hmm. The issue is, though, is that like a Richard Spencer type Right, who I'm not here promoting, make it absolutely clear. He doesn't say Nazism is good. He makes what appears, at least, to be a much more nuanced claim. He'll say something like, white European civilization has made an outsized contribution uh, to the development of science and humanistic understanding and technology and what have you. And that's That's a far more nuanced claim than Nazism is good and there's been books written about uh, guns, germs and steel and uh, books like this that come to account of why do some civilizations progress faster than others or have technologies faster than others and what have you. It strikes me as a sort of area where there's sort of you know questions, interesting questions to be asked and interesting questions to be explored. No, I suspect that Spencer is using that more nuanced claim as to sort of smuggle in (laughs) simply ugly ideas, Mm -hmm. right? Um, but but the problem is is that the sort of my point is that the, the, the ugly ideas are 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 capable of dressing themselves up um, in 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 respectable language. That's a lot of what the sort of new alt right white nationalist movement has done. Right, they've sort of co opted identity politics for the white for, for, for whites. Right, and and so they're sort of using the sort of postmodern identity politics language that was long the 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 um, sort of domain of the left. And have sort of co-opted it extremely effectively, um, worrisomely, but effectively. And so it, it just strikes me that it muddies the waters of clearly s- establishing what sorts of things are in-bounds and out-of-bounds. It just makes it let me
0: Let me uh, uh, pause this discussion right now. I want to get this email in uh, before we close, and we only have about five minutes left. This is from uh, Glenn in the UNA Basin uh... A somewhat long email but i think a good one he says this story may not be completely relevant to the conversation but it was my watershed moment in college one of my earliest college classes was u.s history eighteen seventy seven to present it began in the spring semester in january we began immediately talking about reconstruction when uh, february uh, began the professor very presciently switched to african american history due to black history month Our first assignment, which I undertook very grudgingly, was to go to the library and listen to several Martin Luther King speeches. The first one was, I have gone to the mountain speech. It was presented in documentary form, so there was context, a lot of information included. The speech made me cry in the library. I'm not sure if anyone noticed, but it really moved me permanently. I was raised in an ultra-Orthodox LDS household in eastern Utah. My family was also extremely right-wing. I held the view going into the library that... If we're going to have Black History Month, we should also have White History Month. I walked out of the library with a completely different view. My professor was very good at getting into his students' faces, so to speak, and challenging their closely held beliefs. He could say very provocative things like, Mormons have ten kids and vote Republican. Or, why should working people vote Republican against their own best interests? Yet he was able to earn my respect and make me desire to look into things for myself, to question my long-held conventional wisdoms. In other words, he was very successful at teaching and debating. I went from the guy who successfully lobbied for Sean Hannity to supplant Dr. Laura on our local radio station, to shunning it all for NPR. (laughs) in my opinion everyone should have a right to speak but there should be some refereeing and some regulation I trust people in their ability to come to their own conclusions Uh, Preventing speech from happening is barbarianism. Thank you. And he signs himself the most liberal guy in the oil field. (laughs) That's Glenn. So thanks for that, Glenn.
3: Well, what a wonderful story that is. And, I mean, the the idea that you can come in with a view that you think is is reasoned and nuanced and comprehensive and then through that sort of challenge find out the world is richer and and much more complex than you thought. And it would be great to have a, a parallel story to that of Glenn's. Of somebody who is raised in the thoroughly, you know, throw all the stereotypes you want, thoroughly liberal, you know, household, and then encounters a genuine conservative voice that resonates within them, and Mm -hmm. they realize that that the issues are far more complex than they thought, and they reach a new level, right, of thinking and discussing social issues. Um, Uh,
0: We just have about two minutes left. Last words here? At,
3: yeah,
1: so I, wanted, so I wanted to say in response to the email, but also just more generally, I think it is very important to trust people to be able to think for themselves. But I think it's because I have that faith that people are capable of doing this, that we're capable of undressing ugly ideas, as Harrison put it, that I think that if we determine that certain speech, in fact, is compromising somebody's ability as an agent to think for themselves and to express their views in a way that they feel comfortable with, that we should be able to say, no, we don't want that to happen. And I do think that sometimes people say things that other, like that can make a student feel attacked or feel like they're less worthy as a student and that it's important to actually stop that speech.
0: Any, any, uh, I guess, uh, last words from Harrison Plyter? I just
2: kind of want to second Charlie's point that that was a wonderful story in the email and, um, Uh, It strikes me, the episode at Yale with this Halloween costume, and there's a sort of infamous video of this student shouting the person, this professor down that that somebody posted on YouTube. And the professor was an absolute model of of calm, uh, reserved, carefully listened to her point of view. He tried to respond, validating her position, but making a counter-argument. It was a real wonderful model of the life of the mind, uh, well-lived, it seemed to me. Um, And I rather suspect that a great number of students learned a lot from his example that day. (laughs) And um, so I I think what we need is perhaps the faculty need to take more seriously. We need to be explicit about these conversations. I don't know that we're always tied together, liberal education, general education, our, our major specific education to the task of citizenship and agreeing disagreeably it's maybe the you know responsibility of the faculty and the colleges to 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 help make these things a little more transparent for students we need to be thinking about these things and cultivating these capacities in you and uh, we are out of time so that's a good uh, place to end the discussion
0: very interesting discussion we've had with us erica holberg usu assistant professor of philosophy thank you so much for coming in Uh, Harrison Kleiner, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy, and uh, Charlie Heenman, USU Professor of Philosophy. Thanks to all three. Thank you. Always a treat. Coming in. We've been uh, treating the the topic, Our Students Snowflakes. And uh, we hope you'll join us next week. We have uh, on one of our programs on Tuesday, we'll be talking with the musical group Gentry and uh, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. On Thursday, it's the USU uh, or the AXIS-Utah holiday special, and we'll have the Lightwood duo with us. Thanks for listening today.
2: To understand the human brain. How can patterns of electrical pulses passing between cells be thought? To figure out what makes us human. Why, when all that happens in this circuit, does it feel like something? Might require unconventional methods. Am I really going to throw a human brain into a blender? I'm Guy Raz, the unknown brain. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at UPR.org.